Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Philip Napoli, who's the author of Social Media and the Public Interest, Media Regulation in in the Disinformation Age. This book was published in 2019 by Columbia University Press and is a deep dive into our understanding of social media as technological companies as well as media platforms. And Philip is also interested in trying to figure out (laughs) how to manage these new forms of media, but I'm going to let him explain that. First, I'd like to welcome Philip Napoli to the show and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Phil. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, yeah, so this project actually began probably getting close to 10 years ago when I was just had a broad interest in the, the new roles that various types of algorithmic systems were playing in in all different aspects of, of the media industries. My background, at that time I was at a business school and was doing a lot of work on sort of the evolution of media industries. Uh, and of course there were um, platforms like Netflix and Amazon and uh, that were using um, algorithmic systems to help people locate content that reflected their particular interests. And of course at that time, social media platforms were just developing and using algorithmic curation on news feeds, et cetera. And I just had this broad idea that hey, that's a topic I'd like to dig into um, and pitched it to my publisher. And he said, well, that's pretty vague. Um, no, thanks. <laughs> and so it just, As I, they do. Yeah. So I put it on the back burner for a while and, and started doing other work. And then around 2015, when issues like uh, accusations that Facebook was suppressing conservative news and the trending lists were uh, starting to get a lot of attention, uh, my editor reached back out to me and said, hey, how's that book coming? And I said, well, you said it wasn't very good, so I haven't been working on it. Uh, and he said, no, you should use that book. You should do it. Uh, so that really motivated me to get back to it. And then by the time 2016 rolled around, uh, that helped me really zero in and motivated me to obviously focus on the intersection of journalism and platforms and an informed citizenry as that became such a clearly uh, important issue for all of us who do media regulation and policy research. And you do this kind of work at a public policy school now, is that correct? That's correct. And it's been a great place to be doing this kind of work. And it's been a very good fit. And and so I wanted to ask you about one of the terms that you talk about that you use in the book a lot, um, algorithmic news. Um, can you explain that term a bit? And and so listeners and readers sort of have a grasp of of what that means and how we're all experiencing it. 
Sure, sure. And and I use it within the context of the book fairly narrowly. Uh, it can mean a lot of different things. The umbrella can be quite broad. And when we talk about algorithmic news, um, it can range from everything from the use of algorithmic systems to um, identify news stories uh, to actually to actually write the news. There are systems in place that can literally generate automated text. You plug in the relevant data, whether it's sports scores or uh, earnings reports, and out comes a story that looks like it's been written by a person. Um, but in, within the, you know, or it can include, which is really my focus, the role of algorithmic systems in the gatekeeping process. That is the dynamics by which what we consume uh, are filtered and curated um, by algorithmic systems that we may or may not be aware of, uh, or at the very least, probably don't know too much about how they work. Even recent, fairly recent survey data shows that there's a, still a portion of the population that does not realize that their um, social media news feeds are algorithmically curated. Uh, and so that is the dynamic, this new layer of gatekeeper in the relationship between news producers and news consumers that I was particularly interested in. And that leads you into the into the discussion in the book, essentially about these companies. Um, and here we're talking about Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and a number of others. But those are probably the largest and and in the United States um, most relevant ones. Um, and and how they are straddling between being um, that they claim to be technology companies. But in the way that you're approaching them and the way that a lot of us kind of think about them, that they're actually journalistic media companies. Can you talk to that sort of discrepancy a bit? Sure. And it's something that even as I was working on the book, uh, perception broadly has, has shifted quite a bit. But there was a time not all that long ago when many of these platforms would be adamant that they are not media companies in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and that reflected their perceptions of themselves, given where they, where they originated. These are not companies that were created by people with any background or experience or even necessarily interest in journalism, per se. Uh, that functionality um, really emerged, as often happens in media sectors, sort of accidentally and over, over time, but was not part of the original uh, plan. Um, so it, it, and it also creates a very interesting tension when we talk about regulation and policy, um, because when we talk about media regulation, there are certain types of, um, uh, technologies that generally fall within the umbrella of our regulatory framework in this country and those that don't, uh, and to the extent that you are perceived as a technology company and not a media company, a lot of these issues around, you know, public service and an informed citizenry and news values and things that have guided how news organizations behave um, don't necessarily have to resonate with these with these platforms. But that has certainly started to change, and they've start even they have begun to come around and, and recognize, maybe not to the extent that we would all like, um, that they're more than just technology companies. And you also mention in the book how a number of them, particularly YouTube, but also Facebook, are sort of generating um, their own content in in particular smaller ways. Um, I just watched a television show that was made by um, YouTube the other day, <laughs> uh, and so that this this itself is is sort of moving them, even if they don't want to necessarily um, sort of take on the mantle of being. 
um, sort of more traditional media companies that this is actually sort of a, a difficulty that they have to then square in terms of how they define themselves. Is that correct? Yes. In fact, one of the key reasons they've traditionally argued that they are not media companies is that they say that we don't engage in content creation at all. Um, but that dividing line is starting to break down uh, a bit as well, uh, and which raises you know other issues and concerns. And then we're talking about vertically integrated content creators and distributors, um, which can raise a whole host of problems when you could imagine, oh, you know, what might that mean for how these platforms treat you know competing news organizations if they do move in that direction. So, so then you get into antitrust. You know, that could definitely become a part of the of the antitrust debate that has, has started to really uh, heat up in this country. So we were talking about um, our understanding of these technological companies, as you talk about the fact that Facebook started out in a different kind of place for a different reason and with particular parameters. Um, if I remember correctly, I had to have an EDU um, to get on it. Um, email at the time it, that I first sort of got to Facebook. Um, and, you know, you also talk about in the book how Twitter started as an inconsequential um, place or a place for airing inconsequential thoughts. Um, so can you talk a little bit to this question of these now quite substantial and important companies, their history, um, and, and how that sort of positions them within the media landscape. Sure. And and that, what you've highlighted there is sort of one of the really, I think, important, you know, we could say disconnects really in terms of not only what the original functions of these platforms was, but the nature of the expertise and the backgrounds of those involved in its creation and management and growth. Um, journalism was not part of their original DNA in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and there was some really interesting early research that would look to different types of platforms and news apps and, and, and you know, qualitative work that would talk to the developers about news values and things of that sort. And the response was usually, we don't really know what you're talking about. You know, they, 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 they see themselves as, as tool creators. Uh, and that's something very different from uh, a gatekeeper, certainly. Uh, and that's fundamentally what what these platforms are now at a scale that's unprecedented in the in the history of gatekeeping. Um, so the significance of their role in cultivating an informed citizenry is something that was not at all part of what they were created to to do. And I think we're experiencing um, the negative effects of that, certainly. And, and when you say the negative effects, the this is, uh, again, sort of going to the heart of what you're talking about in the book, is how the companies themselves see themselves as, as you say, as technology companies, or as they say, as technology companies, and not as media companies, which means they don't necessarily come under the scrutiny of media in the way that the government, the federal government may regulate them or others may regulate them um, or be able to sort of approach them. Is that kind of what we're talking about here with regard to the negative effects and impacts? 
Yes. And it even goes to how they sort of self-regulate, how they govern themselves, what their vision of themselves is. One of the things I talk about in the book is, I, I, it's not, you know, the t- we use the term governance a lot in the book. The title re- is more focused on regulation um, because that's a term more folks are, are familiar with. But, you know, this idea of governance refers not only to sort of whatever regulations and policies are imposed on them externally, but how they govern themselves internally uh, and how they approach their uh, um, their mission. Is there a, a public service orientation? Uh, does the concept of the public interest have any bearing? Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, the public interest, as it's been sort of defined by um, these platforms, is very individualistic. And by that, I mean, it's whatever each individual decides it is for him or her. Uh, And as we've come to recognize, that can be problematic for a variety of reasons. That's what takes us into the realm of filter bubbles and polarization and all those sorts of things. It's what makes it very difficult um, for individuals to be exposed to what we call counter speech, the idea of factual accurate information that can correct whatever disinformation or misinformation you may have been exposed to. Uh, So we're losing this sort of more collectivist notion of the public interest within the context of these platforms that have been designed and operated in a way that are all about the individual um, personalization uh, of the, of, of the newsfeed, let's say. And that goes also to the algorithmic sort of structure that that my Facebook algorithm is going to be different from yours in terms of what's pre- presented to me. So so not only are the companies sort of thinking this way, but the way we engage them and consume them is also very much in that capacity as opposed to in a more collective dimension. Is that correct? Sure. I mean, the algorithm, what they have is, is you know, an incredible number of data points about each of us and all the ways to distinguish each of us from each other. And importantly, these aren't just data points that we are providing, but these are also data points that are uh, imputed from data that we provide. So inferences can be made about us and can be made quite accurately when our data profile is compared to this aggregation of, of millions of other data profiles. So very accurate um, portraits can be drawn about us, even if we haven't necessarily provided all the information necessary for those portraits to be drawn. Uh, so there's an incredible uh, amount of what we call information asymmetry between us as users and these platforms. And then increasingly what those, you know, those who advertise on, on the platforms have about us. And, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this idea of the public interest, um, in part because it's it you know it is part of the framework for the book, but it's also the idea that is of, often connected to at least in part the role of of news media of information that citizens need in order to operate and make choices, um, and how that is potentially disconnected from these media platforms. Sure. And one of the things early on as I was working on this book, and it actually ended up motivating me quite a bit, um, was sharing with a, another academic who work I really admire, uh, talking about 
this notion of the public interest and how it applies here. And I remember her saying to me, well, you know, the public interest is really an old media term. And that got me fired up a little bit because I hated to think of that being a concept that we just sort of discard with the, you know, with the era of, of terrestrial broadcasting, uh, that I think it was dangerous if um, these newer platforms operated completely outside any notions of what the public interest is or what it should be. Uh, so, and, and importantly, throughout media history, it has not only been a regulatory concept that guides uh, how the Federal Communications Commission approaches electronic media, but importantly, it's also been a concept that's been central to um you know, the mission statements to the um, statements of principles of, you know, of the journalism profession. So if you look at, you know, uh, the American Society of Newspaper Editors or other sorts of professional associations, it's a concept that guides how professionals in those fields are, are meant to go about their work. So I think it's important that we not think of it purely as a concept that government imposes on our uh, certain sectors of our of our media, but it's a concept that uh, guides journalism, you know, across all of the various platforms. And and so in that regard, the fact that, or the, the conception that the companies have that we're talking about YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, who all basically say, we don't make the content. We're not promoting journalism. We aren't journalists. Um, disconnects them from having to take that kind of responsibility, as you say, of what journalists say they are doing. Is that? I mean, that seems to be where you're you're, you're sort of positing the problem in the in the book itself. And yes, and to some extent, and and important thing to know is that that is something that you know Congress drafted legislation that explicitly creates that position for these platforms. Uh, there's something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 that says that platforms both have the right to filter content and make editorial decisions about content, uh, but also no liability for any content that third-party users of these platforms posts. Uh, so they can act like publishers to a certain extent. And certainly these platforms do a lot of curation and filtering and incredible amounts of resources going into weeding out violence and hate speech and other types of content and increasingly being devoted to trying to weed out disinformation. Uh, but ultimately, um, in order to encourage these platforms to grow and to reach the scale that they have, those rights are not accompanied by any meaningful responsibility. So it's a unique dynamic that they operate under. And one that it's worth emphasizing, as I said at the beginning, it was part of the um, Communications Decency Act of 1996, uh, when social media, as we understand it now, did not even exist. So we once again find ourselves, and this is not uncommon in, in the media sector, um, that we see technologies operating under a, a regulatory framework um, that predates their very existence. <laughs> And and so in in terms of your analysis, where where do we go with regard to this? As you as as you say, you know the the regulation of of the technology 
um, seems to be terribly antiquated. Um, and, you know, I talk about this with my students in terms of talking about railroad regulations in the 18, in the 1880s, um, and, and the complication that Congress seemed to have with regard to figuring that out. And then we look at, you know, the members of Congress trying to get Mark Zuckerberg to explain to them how to like things on their Facebook feeds, um, and, to say nothing about generational age of those possibly doing the regulating. Um, but, but how does this get solved and does it get solved? Yeah, I wish there was a obvious solution and there is not. And we, you know, we may look back and say the, the problem was there was such a willingness and an enthusiasm for letting platforms grow and operate at such an unprecedented scale as, you know, as gatekeepers that we essentially have let a horse out of the barn that we can never put back in. I think if I'm getting that expression right. So that's, you know, that's, you know, we have to acknowledge that possibility uh, that this is a something that has gotten beyond the bounds that which not only can government regulators address, but that the platforms themselves in any sort of you know, more intensive self-regulation can can effectively address. Um, you know, especially within the context of the you know strong First Amendment tradition that we have in this country, um, it's very difficult. And and certainly in this particular political climate, it's certainly unnerving to imagine a very intensive role uh, for the government in overseeing social media platforms. There's plenty there to be concerned about. Um, and by the same token, the platforms keep doing themselves no favors as the various scandals emerge about what they've been doing with our data and, and, and things of that sort. Um, so, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the idea of government mandated self-regulation. And I talk about sort of an obscure context that we might might be worth looking to, which is something called the Media Rating Council, which is this entity that oversees the audience measurement industry in this country. And it's a consortium of members who do things ranging from um, developing statements of, of principles that audience measurement sh- firms need to sign on to and follow to actually doing audits of the underlying methodologies that are confidential and that assure that the measurement systems are accurate and aren't biased and don't favor certain demographics or ethnic groups over others in the measurement process. And I actually think there is potentially a lot there that can inform how we think about moving forward in this space, whether it's, uh, you know, algorithmic audits that operate similarly or some sort of council, some sort of more um, multilateral decision making around every time, you know, when when an algorithmic tweak happens, when suddenly right now Facebook can make a decision uh, to adjust the algorithm in one way or another, uh, that can have dramatic repercussions for certain types of news organizations. Uh, but all of that um, decision making remains fairly opaque and certainly not um, diffused across a range of relevant stakeholders. But as we talk about communication happening and gatekeeping happening at this unprecedented scale, maybe those are the types of things we need to start uh, considering. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You also talk about the the way that economics may come into some of the regulation of the marketplace. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And it's been very interesting to see what's happened in many ways, to some extent, this is one of those things that happens when you work in a, in a fast moving field like this, which was the book was done and off to the publisher. And then suddenly the whole conversation turned to antitrust uh, and competition and um, whether or not these large companies needed to be broken up for, you know, for reasons that are, you know, when we talk about antitrust, it's really about consumer protections and, and consumer harms and things like that. Um, but in this space, this is incredibly challenging because, you know, traditional approaches to antitrust really look to pricing, right? And our monopoly price is being charged. Well, in this space, we're talking about a product that's available to the typical consumer for free. Uh, and so our antitrust framework, um, at least as it's been utilized in, in recent years, doesn't seem well suited to getting a handle on these unique um markets where our data, our, our, our data are really the price that we pay and we give it freely in exchange for, for these services. Um, so, you know, to me, the, the, the real question that needs to be asked is right now, or of all these types of concerns we've, that have arisen in recent years, whether it's hate speech, whether it's disinformation, and my focus in the book is really on, on journalism and it's, you know, battle against disinformation. Um, does breaking up Facebook solve that problem? It might solve other problems. It might indirectly solve that problem, I, although I'm having a hard time uh, um, you know, seeing that relationship. But it addresses other issues about you know, whether there's sufficient innovation in this space and whether competitors to Facebook can effectively emerge. But the core concerns I have in the book about cultivating an informed citizenry, I don't know that this current overwhelming emphasis on antitrust uh, addresses that effectively. And and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the cultivation of an informed citizenry, which we've talked a little bit about in terms of this idea of the public interest. Um, and it's obviously connected to that. Um, but how, how do these media platforms or technology platforms, I keep stumbling over the correct terminology, um, how do they, in fact, make us not informed? And and I know this is a, a, a big, the center of the book in a lot of ways, um, but in what ways are we misinformed or disinformed by them and by our interaction with them? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and this is one of those areas where there's new research on this every week, right? Now we're seeing actually neuroscientists study, for example, how our, how and why we tend to gravitate to disinformation over accurate and factual information as news consumers. You know, what are, because the characteristics of disinformation are often manipulated in such a way to, to make it more engaging, to make it more memorable, um, and so there's an entire psychology behind why as news consumers, we tend to drift towards one 
versus the other. And that's, so that's always been the case. We've always been susceptible. One of the things I talk about in the book is that the danger with social media platforms is that it may be making it easier for us to essentially act on our worst impulses. When we have this dis- this gatekeeping model that we have with social media, where unlike previous generations of gatekeepers or of content distributors, really, social media platforms know less about the content and the sources that they're distributing than any other distributors ever have, simply because of the scale at which they're operating. Uh, and so it makes it much easier for disinformation purveyors to reach an audience. Um, those disinformation purveyors often have more information about us and what we are likely to be vulnerable to, likely to what types of, of news consumers are likely to respond to what types of stories, et cetera, than content providers have traditionally had. But then, and, and then, and then essentially that there is the ability here, it came, it did come back. The ability also for content providers to disguise themselves because the, the, the distributor doesn't really evaluate all content providers in a way that we're used to. Um, there's an incredible amount of opportunity for um, masquerading as a legitimate news source. I do a lot of research on local journalism, and this is a big issue that we're seeing now, which is as local newspapers go away, uh, new news sources are popping up, digital-only news sources that look and sound sort of like legitimate news sources, but they're not. They're actually very often highly partisan, um, run right political action committees, uh, run by you know we've had concerns on social media platforms of of, of sites that look of, of of accounts that look like news outlets actually being outlets run by the Internet Research Agency in Russia. Uh, so this danger of um, you know, bad actors masquerading as news sources is something that has been able to happen to a degree on social media platforms uh, that could not happen within other media sectors. And again, this is this is because, as as you note in the book, the algorithm is the one sort of picking and choosing the information that's put in front of us, and because the companies themselves refuse or deny that they are media companies. And they, as you also note in your research that the the folks who are there, who um, sort of op- the human beings who are kind of journalistically um, hired, are hired as journalists in some capacity, are also extremely low level workers. So that this is a dynamic within the companies themselves that are, you know, sort of not prioritizing having people, having people contributing to that algorithmic news cycle. Is that correct? Yeah, it's starting to change a bit, which is sort of interesting. So Facebook is launching a new news tab that's going to be more um, curated in a traditional way, and it's going to sort of prioritize reliable, more traditional news sources. And there's been plenty of controversy about about that as well. but. you know, it does seem that perhaps the pendulum is beginning to swing the other way. Uh, but the reality is, again, the, the scale at which these platforms operate as distributors, um, it's virtually impossible for, for humans to play the kind of role that they traditionally have, unless these platforms were willing to dramatically scale back 
the role that they play as news distributors. Um, Which I doubt. We, exactly. They're, they're not interested in shrinking <laughs> in any way, shape or form. And, and they're interesting. And, and you also note the oddity of, of the whole dynamic and the whole sort of setup is that they make a lot of money off of advertising, which is a traditional way in which media, journalists, journalism um, is able to sort of sell itself um, so that they have all the hallmarks of being media companies and yet they're not. That's true. Yep. They, they're primarily advertising supported and they've and they, and they provide a approach to advertising that advertisers find incredibly appealing. It's, it, it's a combination of, of incredible reach with targeting capabilities that are, that are unprecedented. So your traditional media um, outlets are, are in no position really to, to compete for advertising dollars because they cannot um, provide uh, the same kind of audience products, so to speak, that, uh, that these platforms can. And does that go to the also micro targeting of these media platforms? Absolutely. And that's something that's been in the news quite a bit lately as it relates to political advertisers, right? And we've seen, uh, Google just made an announcement that they're going to scale back political advertisers ability to micro target, um, Twitter, which banned candidate ads, but is still allowing issue ads as, um, place limitations on the micro-targeting of those issue ads. So this has been a very interesting turn, even just in the past few weeks, uh, this recognition of micro-targeting in and of itself uh, as problematic for various reasons. And, and, you know, again, we don't know yet whether this is enough to solve the problem, uh, but I think it's it's certainly a, a step in the right direction because, um, you know, no other media have ever had this kind of micro-targeting capacity. And what it really has meant is that it's very difficult for our traditional watchdogs to effectively police what candidates are saying to different constituents. Um, Normally, it would be the job of the opposing candidate or the news organizations uh, to police it and fact-check it and make sure that we are aware uh, if any falsities are being expressed. But when you're talking about thousands of different ads micro-targeted at thousands of different audience segments, that becomes uh, a real challenge. And this is one of the other points that you bring up in the book and that there's been a lot of attention to with regard to our kind of um, news bubbles or bubbles that we sort of choose to live in or don't even choose but sort of exist in because of where we're getting our media information and and how it's being presented to us. And you talk about the kind of bubbles and polarization. Can you explain that a little bit more in context of some of the problems with these media technology platforms? Sure. So, and this goes back to this idea of these being individual tools, right? And the goal from their standpoint in terms of a, a satisfied user is a user that is spending a lot of time on the platform and presumably a satisfied user is spending a lot of time on the platform because the content that's being presented in that news feed is content that appeals to that user's interests and your interests might be different from mine those might be different from my neighbors um, but you can target a user's interest with an incredible level of precision and detail 
because of all that data that these platforms have uh, about our preferences. Everything from every, every time we click, every time we like, every time we share, every time we comment, the list goes on and on. All of that is feedback that gets quantified and stored and used to teach the newsfeed algorithms what would be the next piece of content that we would react to, that we would engage with in a positive way, positive being in a way that, that, that the platform considers valuable. Uh, so uh, that's what creates an environment where there could be an incredible amount of difference uh, across different users in terms of what they see as the important issues of the day, what they see. Um, we're seeing this, there's people doing research, you know, sort of over the past few days, basically saying, look, you know, a, a liberal person's newsfeed is, is, is providing a very different portrait of these impeachment hearings than a conservative person's newsfeed. Um, and that that can contribute to completely different worldviews. Uh, and now again, you know, th- We've had partisan media, uh, you know, at various points in the past, but it, it's tended to be not at the center of our news ecosystem, and and that's been a big change. And 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 these platforms facilitate sort of partisanship really being the defining factor in what kind of news and information gets put in front of us. And that again, sort of limits what what the individual citizen actually sees in terms of their news consumption that it's just going to continue to skew in particular directions because of the algorithms right and and plenty of studies have shown at this point that unfortunately and this is both on the left and the right that partisan news sources highly partisan news sources disseminate more you know misinformation than less partisan news sources there's unfortunately a correlation between partisanship and accuracy. And yet the economic incentives, the political incentives for for partisan news are improving, whereas the incentives for providing what, you know, and this is a, you know, a word that no one likes to use anymore, which is, I think, also problematic. Objective journalism um, is in a more challenging position than it's ever been before. So, I mean, this is just a curiosity, a historical curiosity um, of mine that's not necessarily connected directly to the substance of your book. But in the early days of the Republic, we had we had very partisan media. Um, obviously, its reach was not as great. Um, but are we sort of recreating that, the days of Jefferson and Hamilton and the pamphlets and you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts and so forth. Yeah, and an important point to know about that point in time, right, is that those news sources were funded by political parties. Right. Right. And so, so, and if you think about what's happening now where the business of journalism is becoming less and less viable, I mean, the commercial model for journalism is, is breaking, um, that opens up a space for that, model to reemerge much more prominently. Um, now, difference between then and now, of course, is that there were still, relatively speaking, far fewer sources back then. Uh, if I remember right, data showed that the average person would actually consume two or three different newspapers. Yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, 
Um, but it goes to, too, and this is, you know, I'd, I'd love to see the platforms do more in this regard. I don't think, you know, a collection of, of highly, you know, making sure you've got some highly partisan news from the left and the highly partisan news from the right, that doesn't balance out into an informed citizen either, right? And so that's why I think we can't lose and give up on this notion of, of objectivity in journalism because just because you've consumed news from, you know, two Too partisan extreme. extremes doesn't necessarily make you informed, unfortunately, given what we know about how partisan news op, uh, outlets tend to operate as, as you know, in terms of accuracy and factual validity and things of that sort. So this is all very happy and encouraging. <laughs> so, so Phil, what are you working on now? Yeah, something. something. <laughs> Flowers. Yeah, maybe, I'll, and... maybe I'll do that Netflix uh, work that I was originally part of this original project and, uh, uh, and go in that direction. Um, no, um, actually, one of the things I'm working on now, and, and this often happens, maybe it's probably not great that it does, but I finished the book and then realized that there were some ideas that were sort of half-baked in the book that I really wanted to flesh out in a lot more detail. Uh, and so I've been doing some work um, actually really extending some ideas in the book that were maybe a page uh, and are now becoming um, full-blown articles in their own right. Um, specifically, I've become intrigued with this idea because, again, the, the idea with the book was to really look at where is there overlap and intersection between how we've approached traditional media and how we approach social media. And one of the things that struck me as kind of interesting was if we think about, we talk about the public interest and how that was a concept that particularly was relevant to, for example, broadcast regulation. And broadcast regulation was premised on the idea that broadcasters used a part of the spectrum and the spectrum is a public resource. And you might be thinking, well, how does that matter to social media platforms? Well, there's been this interesting debate going on in the social media space about what is the property status of our user data? Whose property is it? Is it mine? Is it theirs, et cetera? And I, you know, I've been really running down this rabbit hole of this idea about maybe the, actually the best way to think about our user data from a property standpoint is as a public resource, that user data in the aggregate should be this collectively owned resource, not unlike the way the broadcast spectrum is this collectively owned resource. And just like those who have privileged access to the broadcast spectrum need to abide by a set of public interest obligations, perhaps those platforms who monetize, gather monetize these massive quantities of user data should have to abide by a set of public interest obligations that are triggered by that public resource. So that's something I've been uh, working on as of late, trying to to flesh that idea out in a lot more detail. It's it's really fascinating, and and again, it goes to this, you know, the the fact that all of these platforms are essentially free to join, um, and then you're giving over parts of yourself, um, and and you're right, like who owns it? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, a you know, to me, it's interesting in that it, it sort of addresses two issues that we're you know policymakers are grappling with. One is if, and I'm not saying this necessarily needs to happen, but if we were to imagine a scenario where some sort of regulations were imposed on social media platforms, the immediate question would be, well, is that, um, you know, does that violate the First Amendment? Well, if you think about user data as a public resource, then that is actually considered the most defensible of all the various 
rationales that have been used to justify any kind of content-based media regulations over the years. So it addresses that question, and then it also addresses the question of, of yeah, how we should treat user data from a policy standpoint. And a property standpoint, too. Yeah, exactly. The, the so, property you know, aspect of it, I think, is fascinating. Yeah, so maybe we should think of it as collectively owned property, uh, and that that might be an appropriate way uh, going forward. Takes me back to the railroads, back to the railroads. It's always That's the what I'm having to do with this research. I'm going back and looking at land use regulations yep. and, and waterways. <laughs> yep. And what, you know, what, what constitutes a public resource and what does being then a public trustee of that resource look like? Yep. <laughs> oh, the 1800s were fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> um, so thank you today, Phil Napoli, for joining me to talk about social media and the public interest media regulation in the disinformation age published in 2019 by Columbia University Press. Um, and where can somebody pick up a copy of this book? Well, I'm here in, in North Carolina in Durham, and our we've got great bookstores here like The Regulator and Flyleaf Brook Books. Um, actually, live in a part of the country where there's some still some nice independent bookstores operating. Awesome, and I'm sure that Columbia University Press website has has it front and center at their website, and of course, all the other places online where you can buy books. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. <laughs>